Welcome to the PivotCast. This episode was recorded on November 29th, 2017 at the Transact Club. This episode features readings from Catherine Graham, Taha Isen, and Conchetta Kinsip. Thank you all for coming out to Pivot tonight. Um, extra special welcome to our trio of fantastic readers, Conchetta, Principe, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna really get that Italian accent before the end of the night. <laughs> Tasha Eisen and Catherine Graham. Uh, we're probably just gonna start things off right away. Um, and before the night is done, please remind me to thank some very special people. Uh, our first reader for tonight, Conchetta Principe. How was that? writes prose poems, nonfiction, fiction, and scholarly work. This reel, out with Peddler Press this fall, is her fourth book of poetry. And in Being a Project on Love is a sequel to Hiroshima, a love story, strikeout? No, a love strikeout war story. She's assistant professor of English at Trent University. Please welcome Conchetta to the mic. Alicia, and thank you, Michelle, for co-hosting, <laughs> and thank you, Catherine, and is it Taja? Taja, um, for reading with me. Um, I see, I see Hiroshima as um, the first book each uh, project responds to a political um, event. Hiroshima, of course, um, is a response to the um, uh, first nuclear. Um, first atomic bomb uh, used, and it was on the city of Hiroshima, August 6, 1945. Um, this reel, uh, the event um, around which this reel uh, centers is 9-11, the attack, uh, the alleged attack of the um, uh, uh, World Trade Center in New York City. So that means in, in, in some respects we've got history here, um, but also uh, each project is a different um, engagement with love. The first project is looking at um, the relationship between, or looking at romantic love and exploring romantic love through political love. In the same way that René's film talks about um, personal love uh, in the film Hiroshima Mon Amour. And it's set in Hiroshima in commemorating the event. So you've got the personal in the context of the political. The second book is about family love, specifically mother's love, um, and that relationship to the divine. So this, this sort of, sort of, they complement each other. Um, as um, a sort of a continuation or a first and second book, they basically follow through on the same theme. And the theme that I'm going to follow through with today in reading is the one of waiting. And this is a waiting uh, in the sense of waiting for um, salvation, um, but also waiting for the Messiah. No, this is how it all begins the inhalation after saying it, the waiting, and the window, 
and no. The no thing of waiting. It is a woman in a chair at the window, an opening to look through, a chair, the woman at the window, for rest. The solid piece of rest that accepts what falls, receiving particles, waves of light, like leaves blown down in autumn air, amassing pools of it. Pick a piece of it if you can, press it if you must, the dust of every grain, the remnant of tears she shed an eon of light years ago. Little boy, the first nuclear bomb ever dropped, August 6, 1945, was named after Bogart's naming of a character in the Maltese Falcon. So done, it's done, the door of his leaving body closed. No thing draped across her thighs, this dying glow, this waiting, soft receipts of all that wounding, as if receiving was the universal law. That is how things begin, waiting until the dark comes and no more, no. The secret of waiting is not this no of no more, but not yet. One day, 20, 30, 40 years, or generations, or millennia from now, she asks, what is this waiting for? The question is always posed, no matter how many times it comes, and once answered is already forgotten. She waits for his return. No, he has not yet come. This reel um, that uh, explores, uh, or mm, that's um, triggered by the event of 9-11 is uh, about um, end of times, the, the sort of, definitely the anxiety in the 80s around end of times, and that was because of nuclear, um, anxiety about nuclear bombs. Um, but also, when 9-11 happened, um, the infamous philosopher Slavoj Žižek said pretty well, this is the time when we are waiting for the Messiah, because this is like the end of the world. Um, so that's the theme that runs through this project. In the first section, it's divided into three, in the first section it's um, set in the 80s, and it's from the perspective uh, well, it's, it's my growing up with a mother who is a psychiatric social worker at Queen Street, which is today's CAMH, uh, but at the time it was called 999 Queen Street. Um, and uh, so I, I became familiar with her patients, um, with uh, mental health um, as a, um, a practice, but also um, became... Um, um, uh, academically interested in uh, mental health and also, of course, personal, um, personal things. But what, in this section, there's a character modeled on the first diagnosed schizophrenic, whose name was da Daniel Paul Schreber. He was a German Jew, uh, or sorry, um, a German, um, actually, he self-identified as a Jew, but he wasn't, um, uh, who um, saw himself as the Messiah because the end of the world was coming. 
Not only did he see himself as a messiah, this was the first hallucination that was a part of his psychosis, he also believed that God that was split in two required um, that he uh, be turned into a woman um, because they were raping him. Um, and uh, so the sex change um, was the requirement f uh, for fulfilling his messianic role. Um, in the telling, I'm, you, you can um, appreciate why Freud and, um, and Lacan, the two psychoanalysts who studied his memoirs, um, would have uh, material to work with around schizophrenia. Um, and this, of course, was very preliminary um, compared to the research being done today. But still, this is the history. So I um, give, um, um, give subjectivity uh, using um, drawing from Daniel Paul Schraber's memoirs. Um, uh, his, subject, his, his subjectivity here as Messiah is a part of um, a series of poems that I'll be reading. The Messiah came and did not. The Messiah died and did not. The Messiah will come again and will not. The Messiah will come, though he is already here, waiting at the gates with lepers and full of love. When you ask me, when will you come? I always reply, today. I am and am not. That gods were a little stupid not to figure out I am a man, not a woman. A man, not beast. A man with feelings, not dumb like earth. I was the miracle of wife for them and let myself become dung, wretched for them. The picturing of female buttocks on my body, honi soit qui mal y pense. There is no shame in this. Messianic delusions, they say, as if they know what messianic means. We have been endowed with a weak messianic power. So sure that birds do not speak to man. Go talk to that Catholic Francis. On that note, talk to Strindberg. He knows soul murder is no neologism. Soul murder retains the character of an enigma, according to Lacan. I may be psychotic, but I am not stupid. There were the stairs we climbed and lost, the windows to miracled birds, and the time that would simply disappear in God's home of no. There was apocalypse. I saw it. I came and did not. I died and did not. I will come again and will not. I will come though I am already here, waiting at the gates with the lepers. I ask them, what day is it? And they assure me, today. And the last piece. Um, was inspired, uh, um, the, the last piece is from the last section that was inspired um, by watching uh, Herzog's um, The Cave of Forgotten Dreams, um, which was um, 
really riveting, sitting there in the dark and feeling the 3D um, world of these caves with these um, uh, paintings that had been drawn 30, 36,000 years ago. What struck me when seeing these paintings was how um, you can see art having been created by literally a pre-Oedipal mind, right? This is not a modern subject, but it's also <coughs> maybe not even like a, a subject that psychoanalysts know. This is before anything we, we can think of as civilization. So if they can come up with such, uh, if, if the artists can come up with such dramatic representations of their world in these, these small um, images of animals, the covered in animals, um, how different are we um, from that subject? And, um, and uh, is that where the end of the world began? Or the idea of the end of the world, is that where it began? That's the question in this section, uh, in this last half of the book. And um, this is the last, one of the last movements. Maybe there was only ever waiting, the waiting of the bear who dreams through winter the waiting of a modern woman who lights another cigarette waiting for the Messiah's footfall. Sitting in cold, damp clothes waiting for the hot coffee to spread through the body, waiting for the morning light. Waiting for the wind outside to stop howling against the glass or the rain to stop beating at the dirt. Waiting for the smell of the wet grass to enter after the rain has stopped. For the smell of burning wood. For the footfall waiting for the cigarette to end, waiting for the wood to turn charcoal or the mar marshmallow to ignite, for the chapter in the book to get interesting, waiting for feet to be warmed by the fire, waiting for the fish to be cooked, for hair to dry, for the footfall, waiting for the wind to change, waiting for dreams to become real, waiting for tomorrow, waiting for what will never come waiting for the rain to stop, waiting for him to arrive as he had promised, waiting for the sun to rise, waiting for the night to end, for the footfall, waiting for the dreams to end, waiting to be found, waiting for the wait to stop. In all that waiting, there was someone arriving, a miracle that would repeat deep into the future, full of light, cascading through solid rock as if matter were immaterial, as if human life were a cave, as if everything beyond these walls were waiting for someone to find it, as if waiting in its passive way were willing someone to come. The Messiah will come only when he is no longer necessary. He will come only on the day after his arrival he will come, not on the last day, but on the very last, Kafka, the coming Messiah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm, I'm very excited. I, I will admit that I poached this next reader from the common uh, <laughs> when I heard her read, because she's great. Uh, and they're also great, so you should check them out too. Every once a month on Mondays at the Bell Jar. Um, Taja Eason is a Toronto-based writer and voice actor. 
Her fiction has been published in the Malahat Review, the New Quarterly Room, and was longlisted for the 2015 CBC Short Story Prize. As an essayist, Taj's work has appeared or is forthcoming in Electric Literature, Catapult, and Book Riot. A voice actor for 16 years, she can be heard on such cartoons as, wait for it, The Berenstain Bears, Atomic Betty, and Super Y, among others. She's currently completing a combined JDMA in English and Law at the U of T. Please welcome Taja. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Michelle and Kinesia, um, for having me. And thank you to uh, Conchetta and Catherine. Um, I'm going to read excerpts from uh, two different essays. Uh, this first one is called Tiny White People, and it uh, originally appeared in Electric Literature. Hiding out in the suburbs, on the hard drive of the Windows desktop that still lives in my childhood bedroom, are the remains of the world's whitest novel. We're talking upper middle class on wee white. Picket fenced, silently seething marital dissatisfaction white. Where every person is conversant in Cheever's entire catalog and has started, finished, or seriously contemplated a PhD. These characters don't just see psychoanalysts, they are psychoanalysts. I fared no better with short fiction. My head was crawling with enough tiny white people to populate several years worth of stories, many of which wound up published in Canadian literary journals. If I ever felt brave enough to mention race at all in my writing, it was either as an awkward conversational topic, or worse, a minor plot point, the functions to which the world could, had consigned it in my own life. Implicitly, every character in the work was white. Explicit mention of a person's race was more to point out what they weren't, which was white. You'd be forgiven for expressing surprise that the author of these fictions was an 18-year-old woman of color, one who seemed to view the world with the blinders of an old white man. Who wrote this shit? is a common sentiment among writers confronting their past work. There's a distinct pleasure to this bit of theater, namely due to its silent implication, that the writer has improved since then, transforming her sentences in the crucible of craft. But the work is also genuinely hard to face. I struggle to charitably imagine my way back into my teenage psyche, that of a girl so averse to taking on race in her fiction, despite its status as arguably the most visible thing about her, that she took to tone deafness instead. A clumsy, not-so-knowing wink at the reader that this was a sensitive subject. I'm told we should be kind to past versions of ourselves, so here's my attempt at being charitable. These overwrought fictions were attempts to excise my intellectual anxieties, a glib performance of my vocabulary and theoretical smarts to prove my fitness for authorship. They were also an exercise in fanatic emulation, further evidence for the imagined judge and jury, who probably looked a lot like Wallace, Franzen, and Roth, of how many tiny white people could dance on the head of my pen. But there was a deeper kind of anxiety at play than mere questions of talent or intelligence, these self-serious slices of white life were also a diversion, a bit of razzle-dazzle to distract the world from the writing that just by looking at me, it might expect me to produce. As a mixed-race woman, I inhabit a body that people have either too much or no fun trying to read. To make an explicit claim to my own heritage is often seen as an invitation to call my belonging into question. The places where I could easily opt out of facing such social torsion were the worlds where I was sovereign. So in my constructed realms, I aimed for neutrality, and to my younger self, under the sway of a naughty mess of factors, reading habits, course syllabi, peer group, role models, neutral meant white. As far, of acts of as, far as acts of intended subversion go, this one was a perfect failure. In seeking to circumvent the question of race, I wound up replicating the same ideologies that had cornered me into feeling like I didn't deserve to write about it in the first place. 
write what you know took a hard back seat. Instead, I wrote what I read. My reading taste was never formed with the expectation that I should encounter, on the page, people who looked like me. Instead, I trained myself into literary cipherhood, learning to commune with narratives that focused on what I only much later came to call white people doing white things. I can think of a number of reasons why, as a younger person, such a communion could have seemed so natural. For one thing, psychological realism has always been my Achilles heel. Nail it, and I may well forget that everyone in your book is white. It's also hard to find people who look like me, so perhaps at some point I just gave up trying to find them. And anyway, circumstances had it such that I spent my time in mostly white spaces when I bothered to look up from the page and at the world around me, given slight adjustments for era and geography, the slide clicked neatly into place. All of which meant that I didn't think to question the greatness or the whiteness of the works put in front of me. I clung to the classics as a compass in the unknowable stacks of adult fiction. I convinced myself that consuming the texts of the Titans was the work of becoming a writer. I affected, then developed, a taste for expensive sentences. An undergraduate English degree fed the beast. The sole force in my life that made any effort to diversify my tastes, if we're not counting certain syllabized token inclusions of beloved, was my mother. I've always loved my mother unreservedly, but that doesn't mean I was receptive to her suggestions. Any twinges I felt to read Maya, or Tony, or Zora, or Alice, were promptly stifled by the fact that to do so was framed as some kind of virtuous choice, like so many of the things my mother advocated, but my adolescent self felt per found personally offensive. Curfews, piano practice, tuna casserole. More than that, I was deeply, destructively resentful of the idea that these texts were somehow for me, or good for me, in a way that the works on the great books lists were not that the shape of my taste could be predicted or in any way influenced by the way my body signified. It's not that I didn't want to read Maya or Tony or Zora or Alice. It's that I didn't want to feel like I ought to read them. I'd settled for demanding less from the works that I read, which in all fairness should have guaranteed the logical opposite, that no works had more right than any other to make demands on me. While I insisted on sheltering my reading list from any forms of outside influence, I'd absolutely no problem disrupting someone else's. For a long time before I was brave enough to share my output with any kind of writing community, my mother was my sole litmus test. I'd push my fiction in front of her like a mouse I'd just killed. Hungry for praise, but usually just provoking the emotional equivalent of, huh, I guess we've got mice. My mom was always gracious when faced with this evidence of my mind's infestations. Gracious, but never in love. She'd read everything I gave her, compliment it, smirk at it, smart-ass humor, and coo over the diction, but it never seemed to touch her kind of like how I felt about Mao, too. But that wasn't a connection I was capable of drawing at the time. I was merciless in my cross-examinations as I tried to plumb her responses for depths that, let's be real, the work hardly merited. Things I wanted to know. Did she like it? Was it funny? Like actual ha-ha funny? Was it better than my last story? Did it remind her of any writers? Were they American? Were they men? Being compared to men was always higher praise. My youthful priorities were misaligned along multiple axes things I didn't want to know, if she had any suggestions for improvement, if it hadn't made her laugh, if it reminded her of anything Oprah liked. The wrong comment, and I'd sulk for hours, certain of both the infallibility and the fundamental enigmatic complexity of my tiny white people. Other than the knowledge that she diligently fostered my love of language, I wonder if there was anything in this early work that my mother could even recognize, let alone connect with. Apart from taking place in a white suburb much like our own, my writing contained no tangible traces of our experience, 
not so much as a nod to our bodies or inner lives or cultural heritage. I wonder if she was struck by this absence, if it felt, as certain mid-century American writing sometimes makes me feel, like she'd mistaken a window for a mirror. If it was a jarring moment, reorienting herself to the awareness that this was the flat and awful lens through which her child perceived the world, as reflected in bits of test tube lit where everyone was horrible to one another and also had no discernible day jobs. That's the end of the first um, piece. <clears throat> the second one um, is still in draft. Um, it's going to be published with Catapult, which uh, I'm quite honored by. Um, and it's about um, all of the uh, piano-playing female singer-songwriters that I sought to emulate as a younger musician. <clears throat> Alicia Keys was the first thing men said on hearing my songs, snapping their fingers to signify the thought's originality, like it took such record label savvy to get that sum from Light Skin Girl Plus Piano. I'd sat through enough industry meetings not to be surprised by the comparison, but it still made me flinch, mostly because it was inaccurate. My songs owed no debt to R&B or soul. They were built on the dark and storm of ninth and 11th chords, while Alicia kept things at a minor seventh or simpler. Her songs had hooks to, sh to hang a chandelier on. Mine carried torches. Her piano phrases would erupt into twinkling arpeggiated flourishes, but you'd only know about my classical training if you asked. I had no gospel-style glissandos, no synthy swish of the 808, and still these men would nod meaningfully to the rhythms of my songs like something profound was occurring before they slapped the table in the throes of their own genius, Alicia Keys. <laughs> At some point, Every artist has to reckon with the music industry's logic of taxonomy. Responses vary based on clarity of vision and mercenary self-interest. A guy I used to see around at open mics just dropped his first single. He's in his early 20s, but he's been on the music grind for a decade, the length of time they say it takes to make it. I haven't known him for all 10 years, but for the last five, I've never seen his stance on genre waver with each aspect, bluesy piano chords, warbling falsetto, blue eyes, blonde eyebrows, fitting into the next, with a confidence that recalls the preordained rightness of a jigsaw. The song's the kind of white boy R&B light I wish I were allergic to, but like I said, the kids put the time in. It's a tightly crafted, spongy little slow jam that, in spite of myself, preloads in the search tab on my Apple Music, even if it's not allowed into my library. A more interesting solution is the one Alicia Keys chose, burn the categories down altogether. Her 2001 debut, Songs in A Minor, opens with then 19-year-old Keys ordering the engineer to flip it as a snare-driven beat kicks in under Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. That snare hisses insistently through the entire record, threading together the classical runs, the gospel choir, the East Coast hip-hop, the sounds of someone young and hungry fusing multiple traditions and self-expressive alchemy. Her innovations make it all the more disappointing that record executives reduce her to type, citing her name like it's the inevitable step to follow from female mixed race and classically trained. My own survival strategy was one of attachment. Rather than facing the problem head on, that I did not want to produce work that conformed to genre, a legitimate artistic position, I took refuge in emulation, modeling myself after a series of female singer pianists. Fiona, Nina, Tori, Nora, not Alicia. Though songs in A minor was a touchstone work for me, its impact was lessened by the enthusiasms of narrow-minded men. Trying on identities was a function of my fandom, but also an act of self-protection. 
In my mid-teens, not yet comfortable with my biracial identity and the scrutiny it provoked, the thought of affixing to my work a generic label felt akin to stamping police my body on my forehead. Fiona Apple was the first artist to whom I properly attached myself. I heard her name at one of my earliest gigs, ones where I'd sneak into bars at 15 and hide behind my keyboard in the corner, playing sets full of original pieces I didn't love. I'd amassed about a dozen songs and was already starting to panic about the finitude of chords. Feels very appropriate to be reading this and surrounded by so many pianos. <laughs> at the end of one show, a woman came up to me and prescribed two names with grave solemnity, Fiona Apple and Regina Spector. The links between their work and my own, I later found, were tenuous, not much more than female, piano, and outside of genre, but I was receptive to this comparison, being placed alongside women who shared my instrument and interests rather than just some physical features. I didn't really vibe with Spectre until later, and even then I never saw her as a model, but Fiona knocked something loose in me. I felt in her songs the essential inevitability that characterizes all great work, but my enjoyment, at least at first, was soured by my conviction that she'd beaten me to it. We shared so many of the same building blocks, a weighty left hand, a suspicion of genre, a taste for turns of phrase that glittered with Nabokovian showiness. She'd just hit on the better arrangement, one that, had I tuned in more closely to the fickle frequencies of composition, I should have produced myself. But envy passed into identification, which eventually became untainted appreciation. The songs that date from my Fiona Apple phase are weighty with piano parts that favor the low end and the left hand. My pieces grew long and ponderous with enigmatic titles that might appear in the lyrics, but aren't central to the chorus. The vocals are breathy and low, not able to replicate Apple's contralto, but still inflected by its dusk. To hear Fiona's blurred handfuls of notes was to suddenly realize the potential chord combinations were infinite. Songs like Sullen Girl and Never Is a Promise, from her 1996 album title, wander through chord shifts that flout the rules of changing key. And as much as her vocals court your attention, the album is a solid two-hander between voice and piano. The menacing chords that open Shadowboxer invited me to unlearn everything about phrasing I'd been taught in music lessons and just hammer away. Jazz is a common label that gets thrown around when people talk about Apple. It's one that she invites, if not claims. She borrows its slinking bass, its sevenths and ninths, its world-weary timbre. Though she takes just enough from the genre not to obscure her other sources, the alt-rock snarl, the hotel bar shuffle, her proudly worn jazz influence was the element of her work that I most comfortably, keenly emulated. It's hard to admit that my route into a historically African-American genre was by way of a white woman, Harder still not to think of how my artistry might have developed differently if I'd fallen fully into Nina Simone's work, which came later. I didn't call my music jazz, but jazzy. The extra letter meant to claim a generic affinity without binding me to its conventions. I felt like I didn't have the technical proficiency to back it up. As a solo singer-pianist, I made it my mission to fill space with sound. I took Apple's seven-minute torch epics, added finger gymnastic interludes, and was disproportionately proud to have no backing band. It's so great to be reading this while that's going on. <laughs> to listen to Nina was to be embarrassed by that attitude. Whether playing solo or with others, she approached the instrument with a quiet power that was no less commanding for its minimalism. The insights I took from her work are ones that, even though I've left the industry, still shape every phrase I write. Make it feel preordained. Let it breathe. I wish I'd not hidden behind a lack of technical proficiency or that I'd taken it on faith that it would follow organically if I gave myself to Nina's work the way I gave myself over to Fiona's. I'd sometimes cover her songs at a short-lived restaurant residency where I played the part of musical wallpaper, 
But even in front of an audience more invested in chewing, I sense the space between my attempts and true justice done to the work. There's no way I could find to convincingly replicate the multivalent consciousness that animates I put a spell on you. The tinkling between phrases piano that feels simultaneously detached from and deferential to Nina's vocals. The shivery dialogue of desire between her and the sax solo, the two stuttering back and forth in mutual desperation. Or the overstuffed phrases of don't let me be misunderstood. Her voice skittering just ahead of the beat before catching up at the end of every line. I am grateful that my resistance to genre led me to seek shelter in the works of other women because their songs enlarged my sense of permission for what constituted my personal narrative. But with Nina, I wish I'd done the labor needed to fully rise to the task. Thank you. Thank you so much, Saja. That was, you know, two fantastic readings. So our final reader of tonight, Catherine Graham, is the author of six poetry collections, including The Celery Forest and the debut novel, Quarry. Her red hair rises with the wings of insects, was a finalist for the Raymond Suster Award and CAA Award for Poetry. Winner of IFOA's Poetry Now, she teaches creative writing at the University of Toronto School of Continuing Studies, where she won an Excellence in Teaching Award. Published internationally, recent readings include the Seamus Heaney Home Place, Edinburgh Festival Fringe, University of East London, and Belfast Linen Hall Library. She lives in Toronto. Please welcome Catherine Graham. Thank you all for hanging in there. <laughs> I won't take too long, really. Um, so I'm going to do readings from The Celery Forest and Quarry, my um, craziness that happened this year when I published not one but two books. It wasn't a plan, but it happened that way. But it's also nice to be back at the Transact because in June when it was warm, I published or I launched a quarry in, in the room over there. So I have a nice soft spot for the Transact. And of course, I love these cats. I love the way they're looking at one another. <laughs> but I think I, I think I like this one better. <laughs> Sorry to those listening who can't see the cats, but come to the Transact. <laughs> the trans cat. Okay. All right. I'll stop now. So I'm going to begin with the celery forest. And... Um, Let's just say it's that strange world that you enter when you've been given an unexpected health diagnosis. Uh, this image I came across after I was diagnosed with cancer, and it became sort of the pivotal image for this journey as a poet that I took in the celery forest, metaphorically and physically and through the imagination. And I'm on the other side of the forest now. Um, and uh, thank you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Long may it last. Um, begins with two quotes. The first is from Alice in Wonderland. Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And from W.B. Yeats, though you have the will of the wild birds. So speaking of birds, what birds they were. They arrive, a cloud with wings and a brain. They soar and hover, land on the celery trees. They cloak the leaves, black fruit, seed eyes. They become what they are, human watchers, staring at the frozen girl strewn on the lawn. They drop her temperature. She feels snow, her blue lungs. Her mind floats, pastel clouds, a glint of buckle. High and dry in the bird-free air, she coils lightning into the double helix of herself. 
waiting for the diagnosis. If we weren't holding hands, it wasn't from fighting. No portent on leaves, not yet. Only the Halliburton forest full of birth. The Eden we crave during winter's run. Then came the scream, an animal somewhere inside another animal's throat, followed by that cold, testing silence we wore as shivers as scales down our back. Various animals populate the celery forest, including moles. This one is titled The Royal Mole Catcher. Come up, I'll be your wildcat weasel. You who pockmark the great garden of Versailles by running riot underground, clever, slippery as buried water. Prongs of steel smashed to the bone. It killed a bourbon king. Myopic and nearly deaf, tossing dirt with those giant paws, I hear each snap in my sleep. This next poem takes us to the ocean and is titled Wave. Gulls with names I do not know, brooding. Their metallic cries wreck the wind's talk. The patina, the pop like oil in a pan, like heat that isn't there. What else eludes us? The Pacific unpacks its weight, packs, unpacks again. The tease of whitecap surf. When whole, we ride the world beneath a wave, each little animal tough inside us, attuned to the crash. This next poem takes us to the machine called MRI and is um, populated with celery imagery in this poem, so you'll hear some celery coming in and out. Excuse my voice. MRI. No metal implants or fragments, a long, fibrous stalk. You signed consent, removed jewelry, face down through the donut hole, tapering into leaves. Contrast material running through your veins. Magnets, pinnate to bipinnate with rhombic leaflets, still lie still. You've been given earphones, a padded table. Seeds are broad ovoids. Cushioned openings for breasts to hang, grown in an open garden, thumping, clicking, knocks and taps. The celery's a cleansing tonic. Whirs with car accident screeches, a father's skull, mother's mouth. Wide range of cultivars. The technician stands in a nearby room, inside a seed, inside a small fruit. So this next poem has a little story to it beforehand. And um, apparently my biggest fan is an eight-year-old girl. And we've never met. I forgot to bring the book that she loves. I'll just wave it up here and you can pretend it's called called Winterkill. (laughs) Has this troll. Hello, Winterkill. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Move anything and it works, right? Um, So uh, one day I got this text from her mother. And, uh, well, just to say, too, that this little girl, I guess she read the poems from Winterkill to her at night, sort of a bedtime story kind of thing. So God help the girl. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so one day I got this text from a mother. She said, oh, did I tell you about my daughter's Winterkill idea? 
She decided since we drive Perth Road every day and see lots of poor animals who've met untimely ends, that there should be an imaginary world, Narnia for ghost animals, and she said she'd call it Winter Hill. I asked her where she got it, and she said, Catherine Graham's book, but I changed kill to hill, so not to remind them of sad things. <laughs> so this is the poem that uh, just thought, I just loved that, and this is what the, my, my imagination did with her story. Winter Hill. The heat glossing their backs, moon licking the river white. They thrive at night. Born nocturnal, they smell the rub of dew slipping out. To see through darkness blocked by moon, cloud, star. Where is the water? The bullfrog knows, the spring peeper. Their growing chorus itches the air. There is no gate to pass, just a metallic scent they cannot detect. What hits, kills, curled into carcass, rot on beds of gravel and dirt. They lie, ready to receive a birth of fly and maggot. But the lifting fog is a trail becoming from the non-soul's heat. The organs stop. All instinct from inside them, now furring air with whitish veil. Shadows trick of weight. Here is where the dead live on, ghost animals, in a world called Winter Hill. They've become a floating pond, a threshold of in-between. Moist portal where water finds water and fixes to air, there, there. So I was expecting music, so where is it now? Because <laughs> this is my music song. And uh, it's titled Sheet Music for Breathing in the Radiation Room, and it's after John Cage. Ratchet silence, I hear ammunition hammer. Go on. Health is a backwards trip. Yelps before baby steps. Tantrums kicking candy in the hourglass. Hex and melt each fixin. Toss the mulch of yes. Hush and play four minutes and 33 seconds under the spell she was. Don't melt. Don't. Question the tunnel. Horse throw black cattle. Terraform black sons of stemmed, plucked flowers. Let mother's hands play trickster the bird before a plenary nap. Let scorched petals fall at your feet. I'll finish with a poem, the last poem in the book, and then I'll read a bit from Corey. This is titled Recurrence. Return to the celery forest. Accept the changes in your sleep, unbroken dreams from the dead, the built-in expiry date. When you are certain the sofa's talking to the chair, hover. Lily of the valley, a gladioli away from the catkin drip sun, where air is birdsong and blue one rose across. This hurts and it's meant to, the quiet of a final score. Rain brails the window, I'll need a lifetime to read. So Corey is the story of a young girl during her developing years to become a young woman, and she lives beside a water-filled limestone quarry with her parents, and it's how she deals with family secrets and family trauma and uh, all the other fun stuff about growing up. 
And I'll just read the very beginning. Dive in, turn to water before it freezes. I didn't know what a quarry was until I saw the one that would belong to us. A pit carved for mining. Dig what you need, the dynamite gap, leave a hole for evidence. Don't think about air filling it up. Air fills up everything. Water makes the quarry more than it is. The blue we were drawn to, on the dock looking out, my mother on one side, my father the other, their big shoulders pressing me in. It was our first summer living beside a lake that wasn't a lake, with wind tents of blue moving in the jeweled sunlight, up and gone and up again. The limestone cut into jagged rock, layered with the weight of dead animals, ancient sea animals, imprints. Lush green trees they surrounded as a forest. Dad had found the place by chance after spotting the for sale sign outside a white gate that led to a long gravel driveway, a bend that led to a mini lake, the house of Mum's dreams. We made up dives that summer, me and Cindy. The watermelon dive, legs in a V. The about-to-die dive, a rambling dramatic shotgun death off the dock. The scissor-kick dive, a flutter of pointed legs in the air. And the drowning dive, rise to the surface and float like the dead fish that smacked against the limestone rock, oozing decay's stink. With a two-year advantage, I gave my nine-year-old cousin a three-second-hand start whenever we raced off the dock to reach the floating raft. Sometimes a hit of the giggles cut through my determination, a memory of something we'd laughed about while lying in the dark, tucked in single beds, or while eating Rice Krispies, opening up our food-filled mouths to shout, Seafood Diet! Mum served as judge as she sat on the dock smoking her brand, Benson and Hedges. She was there to rescue us if we were to drown. I knew this was an illusion. Though an athlete, Mum could barely swim, and deep water scared her. She excelled at land games, sports with rackets like badminton and tennis, especially tennis. Our shells of knickknacks were stacked with gold trophies, tiny females frozen in mid-serve. Watch, Mum, watch. Caitlin Maharg, I'm always watching. Thank you. And thank you all. Uh, you can stick around. It's kind of like hanging out in your grandma's basement. So <laughs> do with that what you will. Listen to some noise. It's all good. For more information on the Pivot Readings, go to pivotreadings.ca. Pivotcast airs on CJRU 1280 AM on Wednesdays and Thursdays starting at 11 PM and streams on cjru.ca.